0: Uh, And tonight, uh, we're going to be reading from Psalm 8. So, Psalm 8. Our Lord, O O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. How majestic is your name in all the earth.
1: Uh, I want to review a few books each night uh, to help us in our building of a Christian library, which I think every Christian university student should be building. Uh, And the books that uh, I want to keep on reviewing are the books that I keep on coming back to, and I suspect you will as you grow in your knowledge of God. One of them is called the New Bible Dictionary, Uh, that contains almost every word that you have in the Bible and it's worth going back to over and over again so you can look up any word, any time and see what it is. So you turn up to something and it says love and beloved and all sorts of, I could read it if I had my glasses on right now but I won't, but there's really lots of entries regarding each word of the Bible, and it's very helpful. So it's a book I keep on coming back to over and over again. The other one is a book, well, it's a trilogy. That's actually three books in one, and it's called the Goldsworthy Trilogy. A guy named Graham Goldsworthy wrote these three books, Gospel and Kingdom, which is all about how to understand the unfolding revelation of God in terms of the gospel, in terms of the kingdom, which we looked at last night. Gospel and Wisdom, which is all the wisdom literature, like the Proverbs and... um, uh, the Psalms and so on, and so what? What you do there in terms of the Gospel, and the Gospel in Revelation, as in in the Book of Revelation, how you see the Gospel unveiled, and I found that particular book the most helpful book in preaching in the Book of Revelation, rather than any commentary. So you've got three books in one, bargain, absolute bargain. Uh, in in terms of now, that's um, biblical theology, the unfolding revelation of God uh, through the Scriptures, and what that is, it's if you picture a bushwalk, yeah, you go on a bushwalk and there's all sorts of trees in different ways and then there's um, lantana leaves or whatever it is and vines and they're all in their natural setting, and that's what biblical theology is, so you actually see things in their natural setting in the context and how they find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. But when you go to a botanical gardens, then you get the roses in one section and you get the whatever else there is on other sections as well, and you've got the rainforest over there, and so on and so forth. That's the kind of thing that you call systematic theology. right? Biblical theology is the unfolding revelation, bushwalk, botanical gardens is systematic theology, systems of thought. One of the doctrines, of course, the major doctrine of the Bible is the doctrine of God, who God is, and the book that I think people keep on coming back to, and I hope you do too, is by J.R. Packer called Knowing God knowing God he has it's basically a set of essays on who God is and the old joke goes that he is packer by name and packer by reputation he packs it in each chapter and each chapter you just read one of those chapters and you feel like it's indigestion it's just amazing but it's great (laughs) It's just good indigestion right uh, and it's just wonderful, knowing and being known, and it's just a terrific book. One of my favourite chapters is how God is our Father and that the highest blessing we can have is being adopted as his children. Incredible book. That's one I keep on coming back to. And the most recent book that I found most helpful is called In the Light of the Sun," which is the doctrine of the Trinity. In the Light of the Sun. It's a smaller book. It actually helps us understand the relationship between the Father, Son, and Spirit, which I think has done in the most helpful of ways as far as recent books go. So they're up the back there, of course, The Honesty System. By the way, those books there on the table are obviously available, but there's a smaller table with other resources that we're going to refer to, especially tomorrow, when we look at our hot topic in the afternoon. Bargain. (laughs) I'm going to lead us in prayer before we look at tonight's topic. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the resources that you've given to us, primarily in revealing yourself in Scripture. And as we look at it again tonight, please, dear Father, so speak to us so that we will again behold the glorious news of Jesus. And this we pray for his most precious sake. Amen. In 1949, the Australian Labor Party lost the federal election. Surprise, surprise, they did that this year. But what was amazing is that it didn't win another election for 23 years after 1949. But in 1972, they were swept to victory in a landslide under does anybody know? Gough Whitlam, that's right, Gough Whitlam. And he had the most successful election campaign strategy ever. It only had two words. The slogan was, it's time, it's time. That's all he said, it's time. For goodness sake, 23 years, now it's time. It's time for a new era of government to begin. It's time for a whole raft of policies to be introduced. It's time for the federal public servants to get paid maternity leave and large wage rises and four weeks of annual leave and free tertiary education and universal health care system and sole parent pensions and equal pay for women and national land rights and divorce laws to be made more liberal and legislation against racial discrimination and, 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 and. And he actually introduced a whole raft Amazingly. He was only in for a couple of years because basically he he mismanaged the funds, his government, and so much so that the Governor General actually sacked him. It was one of those amazing periods of history. I wasn't alive of course because, you know now I was, but only just a little bit, but anyway. But what I did enjoy was the fact that well, I think Rob enjoyed this as well. Rob Copland, did you get free university education all your life? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes, but you still got... See, Rob and I had the legacy of having the Whitlam government policy enable us to get through education at university for free. Na-na-na-na-na-na. <laughs> uh, for free! Isn't that amazing? Thanks to Gough Whitlam. It was time, you see. But the trouble was, it was, of course, that he didn't quite have the resources to pay for all of this. When Jesus introduced his ministry, he said, turn in your Bibles now to Mark chapter 1. We're going to keep on coming back to Mark 1. And it's a, well, it's slightly less Bible flipping tonight because we're going to look at three particular books of the Bible. But Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Remember these words? Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, verse 14. And verse 15, and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. See, what is Jesus' gospel? It's time. It's time. It's time for a new era. It was God's simple, sensational announcement, couriered from heaven itself by his Son, that it's time. The time has come to establish his kingdom, his government on earth, with all his changes. But unlike the Whitlam government, or any government on this planet throughout history, Jesus did have the resources to bring about the radical changes. And we heard something of those anticipated changes last night in what we call the Anticipated Gospel, where God reigns as king. Indeed, he does reign. And that as king, he promises to bless all the nations through Abraham and his offspring. And this blessing comes as he intervenes decisively through the Son of Man to overthrow his enemies and save his people. And we landed in Daniel 7 last night, where we learned that the dominion of his Son of Man is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. That was all anticipated, so when Jesus arrives on the scene, he's saying, it's time, it's time for all this to take place through the Son of Man. And the title for himself that he kept on coming back to, of course, was the Son of Man. And this news is so incredible, so sensational, it so rocks your world that it calls upon every person to submit to this Son of Man as their king. At lunchtime today, I had the privilege of speaking at the Nara Anglican College Chapel. They had all of year 11, all of year 12, and about 15 or so teachers there. Most of the students were not Christian. Quite incredible. I'm going to refer to that a bit later on. But on the way to this chapel service, I heard the radio, and there was a guy who was speaking from the Republican convention, right? The Republican. Um, Uh, Party in the United States is the party that Donald Trump, of course, is going to represent. And in this presentation, one of the speakers actually said, we want the world to fear America again. Can you believe that? We want uh, people to fear America again. It's time for that to take place again because um, Barack Obama has just been modely coddling the nations. That's what this guy said. I couldn't believe it. He thinks that the kingdom is America. Well, he's just a little bit wrong, isn't he? He's got to learn, not just for people to fear a nation or a kingdom. No, we've got to learn how to fear Jesus again. To submit to his lordship to submit to him as the Son of Man. Now, as we look at this title, the Son of Man, we're going to look at three particular passages of the Bible tonight. Psalm 8, which was just read to us, Hebrews 2, and in Mark's Gospel. So please turn now to Psalm 8. Psalm 8. The book of Psalms is in the middle of the Bible. So if you open it straight to the middle, you should find it. And then you go to Psalm 8. And the big point of Psalm 8 is that humanity is glorious because of God's appointment. That's the big point of Psalm 8. Humanity is glorious because of God's appointment. But at first sight, however, humanity doesn't seem anything but glorious. That's what he states in verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 8. Look what he says in verse 3. When I look at your heavens the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You see what he's saying? What is man? What is humanity? What is the son of man that you care for him? Because he just seems so puny, so puny compared to the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Now, you engineers, I've got a particular brain teaser for you, all right, but the rest of you who are not engineers will probably get it before they do, but that's another story as well. (coughs) If in a scaled model the distance between the earth and the sun was the size of a sheet of paper in a scaled model, how big do you think in diameter our galaxy would be in a scaled model? Just a few guesses. Anybody? Put up their hand. Go on. Yes. A lot further than here to the moon. Here to the moon. Uh, not quite. Are you an engineer? Yeah, completely wrong. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Anybody else want to have a go? Sorry, the height of this room? Yeah. Are you an engineer? Yeah, you're wrong too. See, I told you. <laughs> I'm a prophet and I don't even know. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Any art student want to guess? Because you're probably going to get, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's much closer. See, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> art student, yeah, yeah, yeah. the The answer is seven hundred kilometres. Outrageous. Forty-two kilometres is come lot closer than the moon and, and the roof, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> seven hundred kilometres is the distance between roughly Canberra to Melbourne. Ponder that difference between the Earth and the Sun. That distance, if it's a sheet of paper. 700 kilometres is the size of our galaxy and we're just one galaxy amongst hundreds of thousands of galaxies in what we know as the universe. What is humanity but a speck or a tiny molecule or an atom on a speck, 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 on a speck? Our, Our galaxy, our solar system is a speck in our galaxy. What does it make the earth? What does that make humans? We are. What is humanity? What is man? What is the son of man that you care for him? We're just tiny, puny little things compared to the vast universe. But according to Psalm 8, humanity was appointed by God nevertheless to be glorious, even though we're just this tiny speck of a speck on a speck on a speck. What are we? Look at verse 5. See, according to Psalm 8, humanity is incredibly glorious. And although we humans are a little lower than the angels, the heavenly beings, they are nevertheless the jewel in the crown of creation. We are more important than your most beloved pet. Whether it's a, what was it, a cow uh, or, a, or a snake or a, whatever the weird ones were, whether it's your beloved pet, Poodle or the cat, I just don't get cats. But it's another story. Wh- whatever it is, you you are more important than your your pets. No. Yes, yes, you are. God said so that you are. Sadly, there's a guy named Peter Singer who's an ethicist in Princeton who actually believes, and he's Australian. He actually believes that we are no more important than our other species and so therefore they have as much a right to live as humans do. In fact if humans can't think for themselves the species have far more right to live than we do, says Peter Singer. And you know what? He's absolutely right if there's no God because anything is as valuable as anything else depending on what you deem to be valuable. He's arguing the case and atheists don't like him because he's just perfectly logical, that's why. But in the end that's what it is. A- and then sadly in this day and age when there's this blurring of gender distinction between men and women and we'll come to that tomorrow afternoon as well, there's also a blurring in terms of species. So Have you heard about this guy who wants to be a dog? Anybody heard about that? Now I'm deadly serious, this guy actually wants to be a dog. So much so that he actually went up to his wife and said I want to be a dog and he got props and all the rest of it, he said treat me like a dog. And, you know, so he goes around and he goes on his legs and so on. And, and she obviously got jack of it. she just couldn't cope, so he left her and he advertised for a handler. And a handler's actually got him. And in the end, it's a very sad, basically homosexual kind of weird life, but he wants to be a dog. It's not just a gender blurring, it's a species blurring. It's incredible, isn't it? This is where our world is kind of headed in our rebellion against God. But. God keeps on saying that humanity is the jewel in the crown of creation. And in making humanity, God wanted the creation to to know the goodness of his rule by seeing the goodness of our own rule over the creation because God appointed humanity to rule over creation, to subdue creation, to have dominion over creation under his loving rule. And that's what we've been learning so far in our seminars. To be made in God's image is to be appointed as rulers over the world under God's loving rule. And it's because of this appointment that he gives us the abilities to rule. Our intelligence, our communication, our skills, our abilities. Our greatness, however, here's the big point. Our greatness comes not from our abilities, but from our appointment. Our greatness doesn't come from our abilities, but from our appointment. I'll come back to the significance of that in a moment. But having said that, we have done amazing things under God, haven't we? As a species on Earth, we are the ones who name and classify other species. Humans are amazing. We have a thirst to understand what things are composed of and how they work. We've invented scientific labels for ourselves. And this tendency to naming and classifying others and other species lies at the very root of science. That comes out of being appointed as image bearers of God. And we're highly successful in hab- inhabiting the Earth, aren't we? We've found ways to live in every climate and every ecosystem on every continent on the Earth. We're the only species that appears to have successfully domest- domesticated other animal species. We can build bridges over seas. We can build bridges over our mouths in braces. We can even change the direction of a flowing river. We can communicate twenty-four-seven on the net. Why we can, we can even dance to Michael Jackson songs in the morning. No, we can't really. Can. <laughs> these big boy pants don't work, do they? And, and we, can, we can actually do all sorts of things with videos, with Dennis Rackett and tsunami and Ray Porter. and <laughs> It's just amazing that we can do these things. We are amazing creatures. But please remember again, humanity's glory lies in our appointment under God. It does not lie in our ability to contribute to society. Right? Our glory lies in being appointed as God's image bearers. It does not lie in our ability to contribute to society. Now why is that important? It's important because, you see, we all think that what I'm able to do is where I find my identity. Don't you think? That I'm a doctor or a lawyer or a dentist or an engineer or a musician and I've got these abilities therefore that's what makes me significant and in the end if I'm not able to contribute to society I feel insignificant. I want to give up on life because that's where I find my identity and if it's not even my abilities it's my image or what I look like or what people perceive of me which is where I find my identity. But my identity does not come from my ability to contribute in any way, shape or form. My identity comes from being appointed as an image-bearer of God. That's so important because, you see, being made in God's image really is incredible. Incredible. I've got a friend some of you know of if you come to the church that I go to. His name is Morgan, and he, he had a brain hemorrhage. It's very sad. He was here at ECU some years ago. In his uh, mid to late 20s, he had a brain hemorrhage. And so, therefore, he lost function of his body, basically. He comes in a motorized wheelchair. At the time he had his brain hemorrhage, he was engaged. But they broke off the engagement. Can you imagine how heartbreaking that was? Because you see, to care for him would have been a twenty-four-seven job. And I remember trying to give him a job because he really wanted to help in the church that I, I was a part of. It was actually part of a church plant, which is five o'clock congregation. And we had this screen, this white screen that was going down, and you had to put a hook onto, you know, just a, a hook on t- into a, a little place there. And I just asked him whether he could just do that, just one simple thing in his motorized wheelchair. And he tried. Of course, it was the most stupid thing I should ask him to do because you lose your, your very fine motor movement in all of that. And he couldn't do it. And he was just so, so upset. But praise God, he's a dear brother who's there at church week by week, and he's there more regularly than most people in the congregation. Because he loves God and he recognises, even though it's really hard, he recognises his identity comes about by being made in God's image, not by what he can do. And you can see that, can't you? You can say, yeah, of course he's made in God's image. But why is it that we get upset when our reputation has been smashed in some sense because of my lack of ability or or people see me if not having that ability, or whatever it is, and you kind of get upset at that because you get upset that your reputation is being damaged more so than anything else. It's because our identity is there rather than in Christ. Do you see? Now, even when humanity does contribute greatly to society, it does not really rule the world as it's meant to. Humanity really doesn't rule in the Middle East. It doesn't really rule in France, as we've seen. It doesn't rule when there are cyclones that devastate places like Fiji. It doesn't rule when earthquakes kill like in places like Ecuador of recent times. It certainly doesn't rule humanity. It doesn't rule when there's sicknesses and viruses and cancer and death. And the Bible's reason for this is that Genesis 1 and 2, which Psalm 8 reflects, is followed by Genesis 1 three which we've been learning at our lunchtime bible talks if you've been coming this year to know that that's when humanity rebelled against God who appointed people to rule the world under his loving rule that's now box two where we cross out the crown we don't want him ruling our lives and as such the humanity that emerges out of Genesis 3 is an absolute tragedy and we who stand in line with Adam and Eve feel the hurt of it immensely. We see the consequences in our own fractured relationships with God, our fractured relationships with one another, and with the creation over which we're meant to rule, and we don't rule. And all that we are needs saving. And you and I stumble along with frustration, with pain, with war, with disease, and ultimately with death. Some of you may have sent it up close, but I suspect not all of you. And a number of you know, but not all of you, that my mother passed away two days after the planes slammed into the Twin Towers. And I remember that being the most numbing week and I saw her take her last breath. And three and a half years ago, My wife Bronwyn died after a three-year battle with pancreatic cancer and I saw her take her last breath. And death stinks. It's just awful. And if you ever see it up close, you will know that it's something that you do not want to see again. got a friend whose son just turned 16 last week, and he's been diagnosed with heart cancer. Heart cancer. It's one of the most rare cancers that you can get. He can't even walk fast because he's not allowed to get his heart rate up because if he gets his heart rate up, it's actually going to fling all these secondaries throughout his body. He's 16. but he knows God and if you haven't suffered yet I'm sad to say that it's simply because you haven't lived life long enough and this is why Jesus entered our world as the son of man Jesus came not to abandon humanity but to restore humanity to all its full glory and goodness. For as the God man, as the Son of Man, Jesus is the ultimate human being who rules over creation. Almost to the point of embarrassment. He really was so very human. He had an ethnicity. He was Jewish. He had begun uh, sorry, he had begun in a in a bogan hometown called Nazareth. If they wore flannelette shirts back then, that's where they would have worn it. In Nazareth, Bogan Town, he was conceived out of wedlock. He slept, he grew, he matured, he went to the toilet, he worked as a carpenter. He was even an undocumented asylum seeker in Egypt. But he is the image of the invisible God, the heir over all creation. And that's why in the gospel accounts we see Jesus healing diseases and sicknesses and casting out demons and stilling storms and feeding thousands of people at a time. He's not doing it to say, hey, look at me, I'm God, this proves that I'm God. That's actually not why he does these miracles. Do you know why he actually does those miracles? It's actually more to show or express his humanity rather than his divinity. Oh, yes, it, it does express something of his divinity, of course. But, it, but it's actually there, I think, primarily to show his humanity because humans are meant to rule the world. He's there ruling the world. Whenever there's a miracle, it's as if heaven and earth are in sync. That's what's going on in the Son of Man. But the main reason he became all that we are is because all that we are needed saving. He became all that we are because all that we are needed saving. And that's why we're looking at Hebrews 2. So please now turn to Hebrews 2. The reason I'm turning to Hebrews 2 is because, as I said last night, the best commentary of the Bible is the Bible. And Hebrews chapter 2 is a commentary on Psalm 8. Isn't that cool? That is so cool. Don't bother going to the other commentaries first and foremost. Always go to the Bible first. That's why they've got this thing called the concordance where you can look up phrases and so on in other parts of the Bible. But here is Psalm 8 being quoted in verses 5 to 9 of Hebrews chapter 2. Look at verse 5. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? the son of man that you care for him sound familiar you made him a little lower than the angels you have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet i don't know why he says in verse 6 it has been testified somewhere it's in psalm 8 for goodness sake you hebrews writer but anyway now in putting everything in subjection to him he left nothing outside his control At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. No, we don't. We don't. We just talked about that in terms of Genesis 3 and its consequences. But, verse 9, But we see him, who? Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. See what he's saying? Although we are mere atoms on a, speck, on a 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 speck in a vast universe of incomprehensible dimensions, Jesus came into this world as the Son of Man to die for us. For us so that we might live for him as the ultimate human being. He is the one who is fully God and fully human. He is human now at the right hand of his father, fully human and fully God at one at the same time. Isn't that incredible? I suspect this is why the term son of man was the title most commonly used of Jesus himself. And so for the remainder of time, we're going to look at Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel. Please turn now to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. But we're going to look at Mark chapter 8. Incidentally, did you know that my... Lovely fiance is a director of the Mark drama that you might have seen, and she's trained up two other fellows, named Mitch McLean, Derek Racket, tennis, <laughs> Derek. T- <laughs> Let me get that right, the racket man. But and and Sam Mills who are going to be directors of the Mark drama in Townsville so do pray for them won't you as well it's one of those amazing opportunities where they get to read Mark's gospel and those who have acted on it and those of you who have acted in it last year will know that just reading Mark's gospel over and over and over again just changes you and when you act in the drama you actually start to recognize my goodness this is incredible and it's quite quite humbling to be Jesus isn't it Sam yeah yeah (laughs) <laughs> isn't it <Sam? laughs> let's make sure that you're not jesus but anyway you, you get the point in mark's gospel the first seven chapters just to put it in context is roughly all about who jesus uh, sorry who jesus is you're trying to everybody's trying to work out who jesus is and then from mark 8 onwards to the end it's what jesus came to do and we're going to begin roughly in the middle here at what what is the turning point of Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 8? Pick it up at verse 31. Verse 31. And Jesus, and he began to teach them, his disciples, that the Son of Man, see the title, the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to. Rebuke him. You see what Peter does? He effectively says, what Jesus? <laughs> you're going you're gonna to die? You're going to rise again? You can't do that. The son of man doesn't do that. His kingdom is meant to be ruling forever. How can you possibly do that? Die, let alone rise again. He just doesn't get it. It doesn't make sense. You don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. So let me take you aside and correct your thinking. Let me rebuke you. Can you imagine that? That's one of the dumbest, dumbest points in history. That's why, no, 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 I wasn't going to say that Mitch Actually, out. No, 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 no. Peter made a mistake at that time. Uh, he also had to learn how to cry. In the, and Jeanette's really good at teaching people how to cry, by the way, uh, for all sorts of reasons, but especially for that reason in particular. But Peter does the dumbest thing, doesn't he? He actually goes out and says, Peter, let me, let me, rebu- uh, let me rebuke you, Jesus. It's so dumb. And that's why Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. He's not actually saying, Peter, you are Satan. But he's saying, what you are doing is in line with Satan because Satan doesn't want him to live and die and rise again. He doesn't quite get it. Remember, Peter's the leader of the disciples. He spent three years with Jesus. He saw him feed thousands. He saw him calming the raging storm. He saw him casting out demons. He saw him fulfilling Psalm 8. And yet he still doesn't see Jesus properly as the Son of Man. And Jesus sees Peter's rebuke as being in line with Satan. And I wonder whether you could be like Peter, though. Before we give Peter a hard time, let alone Mitch a hard time, before we give anybody a hard time, and Peter as well, could it be that we too struggle to see Jesus as the Son of Man? Because you can't really accept that he really is in charge because of the suffering that you see in this world or in your own life. When I was at chapel at Nara Anglican College today, I asked, you know, we had a Q&A, we had all sorts of questions, but one particular, most of them were not Christian. And I had an atheist come up to me with other questions, but one girl put up her hand and said, if there is a God, why is there so much poverty in the world? If there is a God, why is there so much suffering in the world? At least they were transparent enough to say they didn't believe in God. But I wonder whether if you believe in Jesus as Lord, Whether sometimes you kind of think, why is this happening to me? I'm going through this, or I've got this particular health issue, I've got this particular relational issue, or this stuff is going on in my life and I can't stand it. I don't know whether I can trust you, Jesus. See, it's Peter. I, I don't blame Peter. I do it all the time. Why? I don't think it's wrong to ask why per se. The psalmists ask why. You can ask why from a framework of faith, but you can ask why from a framework of rebellion. And I guess I'm asking you, are you asking from the framework of rebellion? You don't really believe that Jesus is in control. We had two students, sadly, as they graduated, leave the faith. One was one of our student presidents. He was engaged to be married. It broke up very sadly. But in the end, he decided to give up on Christianity because of that breakup. Now, breaking an engagement is very painful. But it showed that in the end, he treated his fiancée as God Rather than Jesus as God, doesn't it? Another student graduated, married another student who was graduated, but within the first year of their marriage, they divorced because she left him for another man. Within the first year. Again, who was God? See, that's why Jesus came as the Son of Man, to actually deal with suffering. Suffering makes you or breaks you, really. Jesus came as the Son of Man to deal with suffering, once and for all. But more of that if we turn to Mark chapter 10 now. Come to Mark chapter 10 and verse 32, because here again, he actually um, prophesies regarding his future. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. Speaking of the disciples and himself, Mark chapter 10, verse 32 And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them, the disciples, what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and after three days he will rise. You see, this time Jesus tells his disciples for the third time that he will suffer and die and rise again. Back in Mark chapter 8, which we didn't look at in great detail, he tells them that those who follow him will suffer the same fate, that they've got to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow Jesus. But here, after telling them again that he must suffer, die, and rise again, two of his disciples come up straight after. He says, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again. Two of the disciples come up to him, and look what they say in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. Isn't that a great, great question? Aren't they so humble? Aren't they so wonderful? Two disciples, James and John, they wanted what? success they wanted success with the most successful person on the planet jesus they wanted jesus to give them whatever they wanted what would you think of someone asking you to give them whatever they wanted this is among the most selfish requests possible and yet jesus answers kindly in verse 36 and he said to them what do you want me to do for you And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. (laughs) They want the best seats in glory. Sit at the right and left hand of the most successful person in the world. It's kind of like going up to Malcolm Turnbull and saying, if one of us could be treasurer and the other one deputy prime minister. Thank you very much. That's great. But they want the most successful seats next to Jesus. Where you're seated is really important, by the way. You get to a wedding reception, right, if you're seated closer to the bridal table, you know you're pretty important. Yeah. <laughs> if you're seated somewhere where, where you need to look binoculars to look what the, you know, the bridal couple look like, and you kind of think, yeah, they're vague, I think they're wearing white, you know, or something rather. Like that. That, that, that means you're not exactly significant right, <laughs> at, at the reception. But having said that, just remember, you were invited, okay, so don't carry on about it in terms of where you're seated, but nevertheless you get the drift. Now, the world is full of James and Johnses, though. People who seek prestige, who seek status, who seek glory. People who, in one way or another, want to gain the whole world. It's a desire to be thought well of. Now, let's be honest. We all want to be thought well of, don't we? Don't we? I mean, just take social media, for example. It's just a little, you know this is cool, when I get more followers or the most likes or the most positive comments and you're kind of comparing how many likes you get because of your news compared to someone else's news or something like that, most posts or whatever. Or your reputation is enhanced because of word of mouth. For James and John, a selfish ambition also reflected their desire for power. Desire to sit at Jesus' right hand and left hand wasn't, seat on the floor, on stools, but on thrones of power. They love the thought of power. That's why Jesus says to them in verse 42 of chapter 10, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, "You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. You see, that's a desire for power. To see at Jesus' right and left hand wasn't just a, an ordinary thing, it was to have power. And you think about it, deep down inside, we love power too. See, what gives us power? Uh, It's it's money in the end, isn't it? That's why Rupert Murdoch is powerful. That's why James Packer is powerful. (laughs) For goodness sake, that's why Donald Trump is powerful. How can a bloke like him, looking like him, marry a few models? It's Donald Trump. <laughs> but it kind of still applies for us too, isn't it? Uh, we don't have that kind of money, but when we do pay for something, it's powerful, isn't it? You just go to a restaurant and it's powerful. When you go to a restaurant, what do they do? They cook for you, they wait on you, they take the plates away from you, and they wash up for you. That's pretty powerful. And the more money you have, the more able you're going to do things. And the privilege of uh, looking for a bed over the weekend. And because I was looking at a particular kind of bed that was possible, when they knew that we were going to pay for it, they just put us on and they gave us personal attention. And so they told us that this coil feature was different to this coil feature compared to this coil feature, and there was the luxury soft bed and then the the plush, and then the medium, and then the hard, the firm, you know. But they they let us lie on it for a little while, and they get us to turn around and look, and and feel the comfort factor and all the rest of it. And they treated us like royalty. Why? Because we're going to buy something. It's called money. Yeah, it's powerful, isn't it? Money talks. Money talks. Hands up if you've seen that Chinese dating show. What's it called? If Oh, you know that, do you, Rachel? Yeah, if you are the one. If you are the one. I was, uh, and uh, Who's seen it? Who's seen it? Oh, I can't believe it. What do you guys do? It's, it's just, that's more popular than Pokemon Go, by the looks of me. Do, do you remember that? There was one, one girl who once said, I would rather be crying in the back seat of an ugly husband who owns a BMW than riding on the back of a bicycle of a man that I love who is really handsome. She actually said that. And she said that for real. Uh, The point is, though, I think she was just being honest. (laughs) I wonder whether we think the same thing, but we're not willing to say it like that. But she did. Money talks. Money, money really, really talks. It's a desire for power it's also a desire for comfort and security because that's what you know. they so say in verse 38, verse 39. Look at verse 38. He says, um, Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism that with which I am baptized? You know what he's saying? That, that is, you, you can do this, do what I do? And the disciples said, yeah, yeah, sure. The verse 39. And they, uh, and they said to him, we are able. Kind of think, do you have any idea what you're talking about? Now they have no idea what it involves. If they did, I don't think they would have said so quickly, oh, yeah, 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 we'll do that. We'll drink the cup that you drink, be baptized, and the baptism you're baptized with. But before we get to what it is that it's all about, look at verse 41, because the other disciples say, verse 41, and when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. We don't use the word indignant much, do we? But you know what it means? It means they were, they were spewing. That's what it means, right? They were jealous They kind of think, what are you talking about? We wanted to get in first, basically. It's not because they thought James and John were being naughty. They wanted actually to get there before James and John, but they missed out. They wanted success. They wanted power. They wanted comfort. They wanted security. And that's what we want too, don't we? We want to hang on to the idols of success, the form of reputation, of power, of comfort and security, and not let it go. It's like... I don't know if this is true or not, but it just works for the purpose of an illustration. If it's not true, so just go with the illustration. Apparently, this is how you catch monkeys. Have you heard this? It's in a cage, and the hand goes in, and there's a banana to steal, and they grab onto the banana, and then when they try and get their hand out, they can't because it's a fist, and they can't get it through, so it's stuck. And so the trapper comes in and catches the monkey because the monkey can't let go of the banana. I don't know how true that is. But gee, it's cool, isn't it? I want to catch some monkeys. I want to have a go actually and see whether it works on it. <laughs> but it's a great illustration in terms of what we hold on to in terms of our idols. If we hold on to something while we're trapped, what is it we hold on to that we just can't give up for the Son of Man? Is it a non Christian boyfriend or girlfriend? Is it a career? Is it pornography? Is it another relationship? Is it your struggle with same-sex attraction? Is it, wh- what is it? For Jesus, success involves service to the point of death. To drink the cup that Jesus drank, to be baptised with the baptism that he is baptised with, means to experience what he experiences, which is dying the death that we deserve. Taking upon himself the anger of God. The disciples were to die, but not like Jesus. Because Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. But they were to die still see verse 45 of chapter 10. For even, what did the Son of Man do? Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If ever there was a memory verse to be memorized, it is chapter 10 verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Please note here that the passage which highlights the desire of James and John to gain the whole world, as it were, by sitting with Jesus in glory, is sandwiched between two contrasting passages concerning Jesus' death and resurrection. Just preceding these verses, we read it before, Jesus predicts that he must suffer and die and rise again. And here in verse 45, the other part of the sandwich, so to speak, is him saying that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many the cross of christ is what is the distinguishing feature in contrast to the lunge for power for security of the disciples here and so let's look at what jesus did do in the end when he again spoke of himself as the son of man last passage mark chapter 14 mark chapter 14 verse 53 mark chapter 14 and verse 53 Jesus is here before the Sanhedrin, which is the highest ruling body of the land in terms of Judaism. And in the Sanhedrin, he's here because he's been betrayed by Judas. And we read these verses in verse 53 and following. Verse 53, this is what happened. And they led Jesus to the high priest, that is the Jews who had betrayed him. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together and Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at at the fire. And now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him. But their testimony did not agree, and some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another, not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. That is, they wanted any testimony that was weighty enough to justify killing Jesus. Any testimonies, even false testimonies, but even their testimonies didn't agree with one another. But here's the thing, in so doing, the high priest is frustrated to his back teeth and then he turns to Jesus himself for evidence because they can't agree. And when he turns to Jesus for evidence, he gets it. And he gets it in verse 60 and following. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of him? Are you the Christ, sorry, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see who? The son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Oh, the charge is blasphemy. Claiming to be the son of man. The son of man. Claiming to be the one with divine power and authority at God's right hand. And such claims deserve death. A shameful death. A death. In which he takes upon himself the punishment that you and I deserve. But he didn't stay dead, did he? He rose again from the dead so we might rise up with him and have new life. So what was the gospel of Jesus? Simply this. It was God's simple, sensational announcement couriered from heaven with beautiful feet that the time had come the time had come to establish his kingdom his government on earth through his life, death and resurrection to save his people so simple at one level isn't it it was God's simple sensational announcement couriered from heaven by beautiful feet that the time had come to establish his kingdom his government on earth through his life his death his resurrection to save his people for he rose as the son of man he rose as the ultimate human being and in his hands a new heavens and a new earth will unfold where everything in creation will be put under his feet And that will be a time when there will be no more earthquakes and no more civil wars and no more terrorist attacks and no more adultery and no more divorce and no more disease and no more cancer and no more death. That is what is at hand. You see what Jesus is claiming? That's the gospel of Jesus. Now this is very different to another gospel that is subtly making its way into our midst, the so-called gospel of cosmic renewal. Just a couple of minutes on this because it's so, so subtle, but it's making its way into our midst, the gospel of cosmic renewal. It might go by other means and other ways and other names, but here's what it's essentially about. It's the news that if all things will be made new under Jesus, then we should start ourselves renewing our world now through what we do through our abilities so people go to places like revelation 21 and verse 24 when it says by its light will nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it so in other words their glory includes all their work and everything that we've contributed to society will contribute to the new creation somehow that will finish them and so there's a guy by the name of nt wright w-r-i-g-h-t nt wright who writes this and i quote he says What you do in the present by painting or preaching or singing or sewing or praying or teaching or building hospitals or digging wells or campaigning for justice or writing poems or caring for the needy or loving your neighbor as yourself, all these things will last into God's future somehow. And so half-finished paintings here, as it were, when you arrive in heaven will be all completed in all its glory somehow. And that applies to everything that you do. Your work will be kind of even more glorified in heaven and all you contribute to society will be seen for what it is in heaven. And that sounds so, so good and so right. Therefore, everything I do is so valuable. But in the end, please hear the subtle, subtle, subtle thing that's taking place because the subtle thing is, is that it redirects our hope from the future to the present can you see that so in other words my hope is now based on well what I do in this world it's it moves us away from God's great triumph at the end to what we are able to achieve in this world now it moves our hope from the Lordship of Jesus as a son of man to our achievements as human beings so in the end it's still about my abilities what I contribute to society, the very thing that I was trying to show you from Psalm 8 that does not give me our identity and all that does is feed my, my desire to be valuable in this world by what I do, by how people see me, by my reputation and that's why my identity is wrapped up in what I do and it's so subtle but it's so influential. But one person writes, very helpfully, the goal to which all things have been heading is not a new heavens and a new earth as if these things alone suffice. No, where we're heading is the glory given to God by redeemed men and women in a new heavens and a new earth. See, salvation is the centerpiece at the end, not the renewal of creation itself. Jesus is, is the centerpiece. What is Jesus' gospel? It is his simple, sensational announcement, couriered by beautiful feet, that the time has come to establish his kingdom through his life, his death, his resurrection to save his people. It's all about Jesus because Jesus is better, not us. It's so subtle. But in the end, it's a completely different gospel. The gospel focuses on Jesus' lordship and not our achievements. But more of that tomorrow night. But in closing, let me ask you, where is your focus? Where is your identity? Because the litmus test question is, what upsets you more Is it people thinking badly of you or people thinking badly of Jesus? What upsets you more? Be honest. Is it people thinking badly of you or people thinking badly of Jesus? I struggle with this. I don't know about you. The gospel of Jesus is the gospel of Jesus. It is his sensational news that should move us and stagger us so that what makes us happy is that his reputation is enhanced rather than mine let's keep looking to him because he's wonderful he's awesome and his power is in the cross I'm going to pray and we're going to sing Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, and for his reputation, for the news that he saves us through his life and his death and his resurrection. And we pray that our hope will always be grounded in him and our future in him and not in our abilities or our reputation. May we continually be thrilled, made happy in Jesus, looking to him who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And Father, we pray this for his sake. Amen with stand and sing.